Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Shamir Karkal, co-founder and CEO of Sila, a money API platform that's raised over $20 million in funding. Shamir, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. Excited to chat with you. And before we begin diving into what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. So my name is Shamir Karkal. I grew up in India, came over to the U.S. about uh, 18, 19 years ago as a software engineer, worked as a consultant for a while, and then... In 2009, I co-founded a fintech startup, a neobank called Simple, which was one of the first neobanks anywhere. And there wasn't really that much of fintech at all. <laughs> so it was sort of very early in the fintech revolution back then. And it took us three years to actually build and launch Simple. And, and, and the biggest problem was just, you know, the biggest problem was not finding customers. The biggest problem was just building the technology and finding the bank partners, the vendors. And, and, and I I like to say that we did everything wrong before we did it right. Simple itself was acquired by BBVA, which is a large Spanish bank, in 2014. I then got excited about the idea of building API platforms and spent a couple of years doing that at BBVA. Finally got frustrated with the big bank lifestyle and left BBVA. And then in 2018, started uh, Scylla. And I feel like throughout all of this, I've been trying to solve the same problem, just in different ways, which is make it easier for innovators and builders to build and ship financial applications, right? Whether that's a that's a neobank like Simple or just a payments app, crypto, whatever it is, it's super hard if you're an early stage or even if you're a mid or late stage company to build financial applications. And there's just so much demand in the space out there. And that's where Scylla comes in, right? Our mission is to make it easy for everybody to innovate and program with money and financial networks. What that means is our core product is a restore HTTP API platform that enables our customers to build financial applications and offers tools like KYC and KYB APIs, digital wallets, virtual bank accounts, ACH payments, and, you know, wire and card payment suit, right? And really, it allows our customers to onboard their end users verify their identity, pull in money, hold it, transform it, transfer it, program with it, and then pay out somebody else at the end of some funds flow. Uh, That's really what the platform is all about. And we have, you know, dozens of different use cases and so many different exciting customers. Nice. That's amazing. Before we dive deeper into the company, a few things I want to zoom in on there. So take me back to, it was 2010, right? When you launched Simple. What was the landscape like there for neobanks? I feel like that must have been very, very early days, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think the word neobank actually existed. We initially just called it uh, Bank Simple. Quickly realized that there's kind of regulatory issues with that and, and switched to just calling it Simple, which and we managed to get the simple.com domain. So that was, you know, that was awesome. And it was super hard to build and ship back then because the infrastructure didn't really exist, right? So if you went out and told people that you wanted to build a bank, most of them were like, are you crazy? And and there was like, you know, all the people who thought it couldn't be done and all the people who thought there were no customers for <laughs> or no demand for a neobank, 
And in between, you had to find the people, whether it was investors, whether it was vendors, whether it was partners who actually believed that the demand existed and that it could be done and would work with you on that, right? But for us, I mean, from the earliest days of Simple, it was very, very clear that everybody wanted a better bank. Uh, Exactly how they defined a better bank was different, but just the customer demand and the customer frustration with the existing banking industry in 2009, 2010 was very, very clear and very, very palpable. It was almost like that commercial. I was like, look at the Simple app, then look at your bank app if they have an app, right? Now look at the Simple app. Which one do you want to use? Which one are you actually able to successfully log into? <laughs> and, and things have gotten better. I think the traditional banks have gotten better at building mobile apps and web apps. But even now, if you look at the best fintech apps versus traditional banks, there's still a massive difference. And banks just don't get technology, even today. And I think that was the we were one of the early ones to kind of understand that and and build products that actually help customers solve their problems. <laughs> and you know, that led to a lot of success for Simple, right? Makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing I've observed just as a consumer in this space. So, you know, I'm uh, not a big fan of big banks. And yeah, I want to be open minded to like the challenger banks or the neo banks. And I gave, you know, Chime a try, for example. And I was using Chime. It was great up until the point that I had to make a large deposit for a, a condo. And they told me you can't actually send wire transfers or ACH payments or actually like send money in any way from your Chime account. And that just blew my mind that, you know, these startups that are supposed to be disrupting the banking space don't actually lack like the basic functionalities that you expect from a bank account. So I don't know, what are your thoughts on like the space? Like, do you think it's falling short from like meeting the needs of consumers? Or how would you think about the state of challenger banking and neobanks today? I think where challenger banks, neobanks, and I think in general, sort of fintech applications do very, very well is serving a narrow set of needs for a group of customers, right? So Chime specifically, my understanding is I had a Chime account. I think I still have it actually. But I think their focus has always been towards sort of more, I would say, middle income customers, uh, maybe even lower income customers. And so they never positioned themselves as a high-end bank. And so I'm not surprised that they didn't have wire capabilities. I don't know, they might have built wire capabilities by now, but I'm pretty sure they didn't have it when they launched. In fact, Simple didn't have outgoing wire capabilities when Simple launched, whatever, 10 plus years ago, right? And it's just because the infrastructure that you need to build all of that is so complex and each payment system on the back end is is completely different and works differently. And when you're building a financial application or a fintech application like a Simple or a Chime or, or like any of our customers, You know, you can't just go and get a core banking system from Pfizer or FIS, which is 30 years old and highly outdated, but has all of these capabilities built in, right? Because what you end up with is you end up exactly the same like every other bank out there, right? So part of the downside of having to rebuilding everything and making it better is there's a lot of building to do. And a lot of it is deep in in the minds of the payment systems, right? And so you just have to prioritize, right? Like you're like, hey... Do I invest a lot in building out, you know, wire functionality, which maybe only 5% of my customers are interested in? Or do I spend more, take this, those same, you know, investment dollars and engineering time and effort and build it, put it into building like a, you know, whatever, a go savings app feature or or something else that 
my customers care about more, right? I think mm-hmm. in general, the traditional banks have a lot more breadth of functionality, but really suck at helping customers solve particular problems. While the neo banks, and especially more and more now, just like you know, point fintech uh, apps which do one thing only, they tend to be really good at doing one thing, but that breadth of functionality isn't there yet. That makes a lot of sense. And that's really good context to have just to better understand the space. Now, two questions we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as an entrepreneur. What CEO do you admire the most and why do you admire them? I was thinking about this and I think the one that comes to mind is actually Christo Karman, the CEO of Wise. Wise used to be called TransferWise and they rebranded a couple of years ago, I think. And they were a London-based startup that got started Oh, I think about 11, 12 years ago, right around the time that Josh and I were starting Simple. And I met Christo and his co-founder, Tavit, and I actually invested in them as one of my early angel investments. And they took that initial vision of solving the problem of cross-border payments, which was a problem that they were running into, you know, sort of deeply on a daily basis as Estonians living in London. (laughs) And they built out the TransferWise app and grew it and scaled it. And now they are in, I think, like 60 plus countries doing almost a billion dollars a year in revenue, went public on the London Stock Exchange last year, right? I had the privilege of having like a ring seat, (laughs) ringside seat to that whole story and watching them from literally when they were two guys with a deck till I don't know how many thousands of employees Wise has now, right? And what has always impressed me about Christo and Tavit both, but Christo is, is the CEO right now, is that like through it all, they've just stayed very genuine, very humble people, right? Every time I kind of run into Christo or, or Tavit for that matter, and I, I think they're both billionaires now, <laughs> right? But I don't feel like he lives his life any differently. I don't feel like he's any different of a Christo than the 30-something struggling entrepreneur I met 12 years ago, right? Like none of that stuff has gone to his head. He just works really, really hard like he always has, is very humble and very, very dedicated to that problem that they're trying to solve, which is making it easy to move money across borders and, and help those customers, you know, solve their you know financial problems, right? And, and that always inspires me. Amazing. I love that. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And this can be a business book, or it could just be a personal book that's really shaped how you view the world. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say a couple actually of David Graeber's books. And David Graeber is this like sociologist, anthropologist who he just he died actually, I think last year. But he wrote this book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. And I've always been a bit of an armchair historian, especially about like, you know, everything financial related, right? Like the history of payments networks and money has is kind of always fascinated me. But he took every preconception I had about things, about like what even is money and, and just kind of blew it all up, right? And so I felt like before reading that book, I thought I knew a lot about payments and money and debt. And after reading it, I felt like I knew nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that was one of the frustrating parts. He he raised all these deep philosophical questions about like what money means to society and, and humans and and then didn't answer any of them. <laughs> right? And I'm like, well, what's the solution, David? Like, what are we supposed to do now? And there's there isn't one, right? We have to figure it out. But I'll just give you one tidbit from the book that stuck with me, right? Socrates, the Buddha, and Confucius were all alive at the same time. Wow. 
right around 500 BC, these three philosophers who completely changed philosophy in three different cultures, quite widely separated, yet they were all alive at the same time. And you're like, that's weird. What happened? Like, why weren't more philosophers around 500 years before in, in 1000 BC? And why weren't more around, like, what was happening around 500 BC in Greece, India, and China that caused an explosion in philosophy? Because that's actually what happened. It's not just like Socrates was isolated or, or the Buddha. There was like major philosophical kind of movements that got started. And, and these were just the most famous philosophers of that. And we don't know why, but one of the explanations is that all three of those cultures started minting coins right around 550 BC. And suddenly, you know, you start minting coins and, and 25, 50 years later, there's a philosopher on every street corner. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, I know what I'll be doing this weekend. Now I'll uh, have to read that first book. You said there's three of them, right? Two, actually. He wrote another book just before he died uh, called A New History of Everything which I have not finished reading. Um, I'm almost at the end of it. but And that completely blew up all my understanding of like the evolution of humanity, agriculture, the U.S. Constitution, actually. <laughs> and so now that... Yeah, he, he, he apparently, li- I guess, liked to do that, is like rewrite the narratives we tell ourselves about how we got here. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I look forward to diving into that. One thing I want to ask you, know, based on what you just said there, and you know, I think this will be helpful for our listeners, could you maybe take us back through the history of the U.S. payment system and explain a little bit about that history and, and how it's evolved over the past 50 or 100 years? Oh, wow. I mean, we could spend hours just talking about it, right? Like, at the time of the founding of the U.S., there was a mini financial crisis because the you know the colonies went into a lot of debt to finance the revolutionary war and most of that debt was to france which had seen the opportunity to beat its old rival england and heavily supported the the revolution and it worked out right like the us became independent but then owed all this money to france that led to a bunch of problems and there was from the, those early times right like literally from like the 1780s there was this whole like pro-central bank and anti-central bank movement, which still is still here in the U.S. There are still people who hate the Federal Reserve. There were multiple attempts to create a central bank of the U.S. I think Alexander Hamilton started one, but then it kind of was shut down by like the 1830s or something. And it was exactly because of kind of the same sentiments now, where a lot of people just don't trust government and don't trust the government to, to create money. Right. And so the U.S. ended up on the gold standard, just like all of the rest of the Western world. But it was all there was always a movement to try and make it a silver standard rather than a gold standard, because one of the problems of money that's linked to commodities like gold or silver is like as the economy expands, you need you need more money, but you might not have more gold. (laughs) You know, the amount of gold you have is dependent on how much you can find and mine. And uh, the U.S. actually throughout the 19th century had a lot of silver because it kept finding silver in places like Nevada, but didn't actually have a lot of gold. Most of the world's gold came from like Australia and South Africa. So a lot of things, of course, the Civil War is when greenbacks were created. And then there was a lot of like, you know, monetary policy changes that happened around the Civil War as both the North and the South tried to finance their their sides of the war. But if you look at it post-Civil War, from 1865 to 1914, 
on average, every seven years, the U.S. had a recession and a financial crisis. So every time there was a recession, they, everybody would be like, oh, shit, the local banks are going to go out of business because they owe all these debt to these, uh, you know, they hold all the debt of these businesses that are going out of business. And there would be a bank run and that would cause banks to collapse. And this problem just got bigger and bigger as the U.S. economy got bigger and bigger. And finally, there was enough sort of consensus for the Federal Reserve to be created in, in 1913, just in time for World War One, <laughs> and the massive amount of money and debt that had to be created to finance World War One. And then there was like the boom of the 20s, the bust, and the U.S. going off the gold standard, and then finally World War II, right? And that's kind of like the monetary history of the U.S. I don't think the Fed actually figured out how to run monetary policy properly until around the early 80s. So there's been a lot of learning about like inflation targeting and all of that that took the Fed like 60, 70 years out of after its founding to, to figure out. And they made a bunch of mistakes like uh, during the Depression, for example. And that brings us to kind of where we are today, right, with the, the Fed rapidly raising interest rates in an effort to cool the economy. And now they understand that that's how that, that all works. In terms of payment systems right now, the, the U.S. cash, whether that's, you know, coins or, or paper notes is kind of the oldest one and has been around for uh, coins have been around for thousands of years. <laughs> cash has been around for centuries. And then there's cash, coins, cards. You know, whether that's debit or credit cards, there's checks, there's ACH, and then there's Fedwire, right? And just to put it in perspective, the card networks move about $9 trillion a year in the US. The ACH system moves about $73 trillion a year. And then Fedwire moves about 3 to $4 trillion a day. So I think this year, Fedwire will move more than a quadrillion dollars in 2022, which is sometimes these numbers are very hard for people to even even understand. Like, what is a quadrillion dollars, right? Like this number does not compute. <laughs> Hurts my brain. <laughs> it does. It does. And what you have to realize is that like there's levels of payments, right? Like cards, the average card transaction is, I think it's like sub hundred dollars, things like about 40 bucks for debit cards, maybe 60, 70 bucks for credit cards. The average ACH transaction, I think it's like 2000 bucks because, you know, ACH is how businesses move money. It's how people's paycheck gets deposited. But typically, when you walk into a store to buy a coffee, you're not using ACH, right? Uh, you're using a card. So it's different use cases. The average payment on Fedwire is like $3.5 million. So it's a large amount of money, but it's being done in relatively fewer transactions, right? And what you have to realize is like the US payment system is also the backbone of the global payment system. So when, you know, somebody in South Africa decides to buy a company in Japan, that payment is probably getting routed through New York. <laughs> uh, and some of it gets settled in Fedwire, right? So the, the Fedwire essentially is like the backbone of the U.S. financial system, but also of the global financial system to this thing called the continuously linked settlement bank. Let's not get into all of that. But it is a large reason of for why the dollar is so dominant globally and why the U.S. has so much economic power to do things like impose sanctions or whatever is because all of that has to go through dollar clearing in New York and all the world's money, actually. And if you don't have access to dollar clearing in New York and, and through Fed wire, which is how all settlement happens, you basically can't do business globally. Wow. 
I think I just learned more in the past eight minutes about money and how payments works than I've learned in my entire life or knew in my entire life. So appreciate the crash course there. I'm sorry, man, you asked for it. I could go on for another hour on each of these payment <laughs> systems, but I feel like that might defeat the purpose. Hey, no worries. And you know, I love when guests come on and can you know, give these types of explanations and, and really educate me and educate the listeners. So really appreciate that. It's all super fascinating. Now to switch gears a little bit, or you know, in a major way, I would say, let's dive deeper into the company. So could you explain to us just at a very high level, how would your customers articulate the problem that you're solving for them? Yep. Typically, what a customer is looking to do and what they are trying to do is build a fintech application, mobile, web. Sometimes it's some sort of automated backend process as part of like a a business application. It's, it's, it's many different things, but they're writing a piece of code that needs to do something with money. And typically it needs to take money that's in a bank account somewhere and move it into another bank account somewhere else. Now that I'm generalizing at a super high level, right? Sometimes it's just straight payments of like, hey, I'm building a fintech application as an example to do payments in the chemical industry. And so I need to take money from a bunch of companies and pay it out to a bunch of other companies. And it's just straight payments transfers. Or it could be somebody who is in the you know commercial real estate space where they actually lend out money. And so they give money to people first and then collect it later <laughs> over a period of time, right? Or it could be a fintech application doing, uh, you know, PFM, right? Like one of our customers basically does credit monitoring and credit improvement for you know, low to moderate income Americans. And they use us for that as well. But fundamentally, it comes down to writing a bunch of code that needs to take money from somewhere and move it somewhere else, operate on a set of rules in between, you know, whether that's lending, whether that's payments, whether that's savings, whether that's near banking, is it's quite broad. Mm-hmm. And the core payment system that's most heavily used is ACH, right? And that's where we come in because we tend to be ACH experts and we have the ledger and all the tools to be able to create wallets, create accounts, move money, program with it, keep track of all of this, and then do it in a regulatory compliant fashion. Interesting. And one thing to ask here on ACH, and this is probably a dumb question and you may have covered it already, but who owns ACH? Is that owned by the government? Is that you know, comprised of different banks and financial institutions coming together. Who owns ACH? Oh, Brett, that's a great question. <laughs> it comes down to what you mean by the word own, really. Uh, so I'll explain how ACH actually works. ACH is a system that was created in the early 70s by a consortium of banks. And it is an electronic system, but you have to realize it predates the internet and it predates personal computers, right? It was the early days of the mainframe computer era in the 70s. So the way it works is that you create a file, a text file actually, which has a bunch of payment instructions in it to debit and credit bank accounts. And you send it to your bank typically, but through the bank, it goes to one of the backend processors. And they basically do this giant file merge, and then they send you a file back right, with what, which transactions got executed and which got returned and, and, and all of that. So that's that's conceptually how it works. And you're like, wow, <laughs> that's how they move 73 trillion a year? It's like, yep, that is how they move 73 trillion a year. And there's two main processes. There's only two processes actually at the back end for ACH. One is the Federal Reserve. 
and they process slightly less than 50% of ACH payments. I think it's about 45, 48. I haven't looked it up recently, but I call it half of ACH payments go through the Fed. The remaining half goes through essentially the clearinghouse. The clearinghouse is a consortium. It's a, it's a company that's owned by a consortium of basically large banks, right? Like the Chases and and Bofas of the world are the ones who kind of own the most, uh, the largest chunks of the of the clearinghouse. And the clearinghouse operates one switch for ACH, which is typically used quite heavily by the large banks. The Fed operates another switch for ACH, which is, again, typically used by mid-sized to smaller banks more heavily. And the Fed and the clearinghouse, you know, route payments to each other, right? So it doesn't matter if you're sending a payment to Chase, you don't have to send it to the clearinghouse. You can send it to the Fed and it will make it to Chase just on the same schedule. Uh, And if you're Chase and you want to send it to a small community bank, you send it to the clearinghouse and they'll make sure it gets to the Fed. So that's kind of how the system operates on the back end. And I mean, it's it's very outdated. It's not real time. Payments take multiple days to get. And especially, you know, it doesn't work on nights, weekends and holidays. <laughs> uh, and then we, and this is, you know, mid-December. So we have a lot of holidays coming up. So it's it can be quite frustrating when you look at payments innovation across the world. And most of the world now, pretty much all the developed countries and most of the developing countries in the world now operate on a real-time payment system where you send a payment and it's received in like a minute (laughs) rather than two business days. But the U.S. has not yet done that. Mm, Makes sense. And I've heard that from people from Europe when they come to the U.S. or move to the U.S., they're mind blown how bad our banking system is. And like the idea that, you know, a transfer can take a couple of days. I feel like in Europe, that doesn't really exist. And it hasn't existed for a while, right? Like, and again, when you say Europe, there's a bunch of European countries, some of them more advanced than the than the others. But the the United Kingdom, as an example, had a, launched its faster payment system in 2007, I believe, and they call it Faster Pay. And across all of Europe, they launched uh, SEPA, this single euro payments area system. In I think it got launched in like 16, 15. Like it's at least five years old now. And the U.S., the Fed is now building a new system, which they call FedNow, which is a real-time payment system. It's supposed to go live in Q3 of next year. So in Q3 of 2023, the U.S. will have caught up with Europe as of 2008. Wow. So no more waiting around for a couple of days for transfers to go through? Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that, Brett. I mean, it's the system will go live. Mm-hmm. It actually needs to be adopted by... 4,800 banks and 5,000 plus credit unions, they need to build it and integrate it into their systems and then make it available to customers, right? In a way that customers can then use. My expectation is that I actually did the math on this. There is a, an alternative payment system. It's called RTP and it's it's a private system run by the clearinghouse. It has all the big banks on it, but you know, I think it has like, 250 or 300 banks on it, but there's a long tail of community banks and credit unions who haven't signed up to RTP. But RTP launched in 2019. It's been growing rapidly. I think it's it's growing like more than 50% a year <laughs> right now, right? But it's starting from zero, right? And if you assume that RTP and FedNow grow at the same, whatever, 50% a year rate that they have like in the last year, and they keep that up forever, and that ACH stops growing, it will still take 13 years for RTP and FedNow to catch up with ACH. 
13 years. We're talking 2035. That's crazy. All right, so it's going to take a while then. 73 trillion, man. I mean, old payment systems, they literally never die. Like every payment system that ever achieved broad adoption across multiple geographies in human history is still with us today. Coins, (laughs) 600 BC in Lydia, we still use them. Cash, whatever, 8th century Tang Dynasty in China, we still use them. Cards, I mean, depending on how you define it, that's either 40 or 80 plus years ago, right? Still use them. Checks, the Persians invented that around 2,000 years ago. Still use them. Uh, (laughs) I kid you not, I don't know if you know about this, but there's this like one island in the Pacific off the coast of like Papua New Guinea and Australia called Yap. And they actually used to use big round stones. I kid you not. These stones weigh like hundreds of kilograms with a big hole in the center. They look like giant donuts. They used to use those for money. And there's a whole kind of cultural and historic reason why. They actually still do. I mean, they were a German colony in the 1880s. And and so now they use modern money. But for some ceremonial purposes, they still use Yap stones on the island of Yap. (laughs) So I'm like, (laughs) old forms of money and payments just don't die out. Again, before World War I, when everybody in the planet was on the gold standard, they would ship gold between countries all the time to settle payments, right? Gold was a form of payment. And especially if it was large amounts, you wanted the actual underlying gold. That stopped during World War I because the Germans started sinking ships (laughs) and you didn't want all your gold to go to the bottom of the ocean. So you would think that gold as a form of payment died out. It has not. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York in the vault in New York City I think they keep like 800 tons of gold, something like 4% of all gold mined in the entire history of humanity is sitting in that one vault in New York. And it all belongs to the world's central banks, you know, everybody from the Bank of England to the Reserve Bank of India, they all keep their gold in, in New York. And every now and then, they, when, you know, the central bank of the UAE decides to pay the Bank of England a few billion dollars, they'll call up New York and somebody in the in New York will go and take a rack of gold out of one vault and go put it into another vault. So they still do gold payments. It's only used for very specialized purposes and it's all done mostly within one vault in New York. But that payment system has not died out. That's so fascinating. So ACH will be with us for a while. And I'm, I'm sorry to say checks will probably be with us for a while as well, as will cash and cards. But we will have a lot more new payment system. And I think a lot more of the innovation and the innovative use cases will move to the new payment systems. And the old payment systems will just become niche ones used for like specialized payments between central banks, for example. Makes a lot of sense. Wow, such fascinating stuff. A couple more questions here for you on the products. I know we're uh, we're getting, or we are up on time here. Are there any numbers you can share just to highlight the growth and progress and adoption that you're seeing so far with customers? Totally. So we have close to 100 customers in total, more than 50 of whom are live. And, you know, a couple of dozen are still in the process of integrating and, and going live. And we've seen... Let me see what's the latest numbers. We've seen like about 5x growth in total transactions this year. And yeah, almost 6x actually. And, you know, we do anywhere from 10 to 25% transaction growth month on month right now. And that doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Our big customers continue to grow and scale and, and, and we keep adding new customers, right? 
and we're just we still like when you look at the overall numbers for ACH or cards or any other payment system in the US, we we're we're just a we're just a flea on an elephant, right? Like uh, <laughs> they're so large, these financial services industry overall is so large that we could grow at this rate for at least a decade, and then we'd be an overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you attribute to your success so far and, and the growth that you're seeing? Obviously, there's a, just a lot of noise in fintech. There's you know, a lot of startups that have been funded in the last couple of years. So what do you think you're getting right? How are you breaking through all that noise? I'm not sure we are in the sense that like there is a lot of noise. And I feel like I still run into a lot of people who have no idea what Scylla is or what we do. And I'm like, really? But like, we're the perfect solution for your problem. <laughs> How is it that you've never heard of us? Uh, but I think there's, I, I saw that a number that said there's like 5,000 fintech startups in the US now. So that is, it can be hard to kind of find the good workable solutions out there. I think probably back in 2010, there might have been like 50. Right? So the industry has grown a lot. It's going to a bit of a bust right now. 2022, you know, the stock markets are down, interest rates are up, uh, crypto is going through a, a big crash, and, and fintech is also going through a crash. The thing is, in crypto, there's there's a crash every three years, right? It, it's, it's a highly cyclical business. But for fintech, this is the first time that there's been a real fintech bust from 2010 till this year. It was pretty much, you know, a story of like steady growth until 2021. Then, then there was explosive growth, right? And the underlying dynamics are great. Everybody from PayPal 25 years ago to Scylla now, all of us together, we don't even have 2% market share of global financial services. So there's a long way to go before we even get to 10%. And the secular growth trends that have been driving down, it's just that the industry managed to get ahead of itself in terms of like valuations and investment and, and everything else. And what I tell everybody is what we try to do at Scylla as well, which is, you know, just stay focused on your product, your customers, and just keep building and shipping. And startups are not like a overnight success, right? It takes years, sometimes decades of building before you do become that overnight success and everybody hears of you. So it is 99% perseverance. Anything to that remaining 1%, I think it's staying true to the mission and staying true to your customers. I love that. Last question here for you. If we zoom out three years from today, what's the vision for the company? What does it look like? I think three years from today, we'll still be serving the same customers with the same products and continuing to grow and scale that. I think what we will add is support for a lot more payment systems, right? I'm quite excited about FedNow and RTP and their growth over the next two, three years. We'll definitely start supporting them, especially as FedNow rolls out next year. But also the kind of the old pay quote-unquote, old payment systems, right? Uh, cards, of course, ACH, wires, checks. There's still so much work to do on all of those. And everything about payments, especially, you know, it's just like, it's not about the 99 or 99.9% .9 of payments that work fine. It's all about that 0.1% that have a problem. And how do you make that easy for your customers to solve, deal with, and free up their ability to go and build wonderful applications for all of us? Amazing. Well, that's certainly an exciting vision. I look forward to seeing that happen. We are up on time here, so we're going to have to wrap. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? 
Well, so the, the Scylla website, right, uh, www.scyllamoney.com is always the place where you can track us. And then we're also pretty active on Twitter. So it's at the rate Scylla Money on Twitter. And if you want to follow me personally, I am, you know, at the rate Shamir underscore K on Twitter. So all of those places are, are good to follow me and also on LinkedIn, right? Like just look me up on LinkedIn and you can follow me there as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share all this wisdom and educate me on how payments work in the United States and the world and sharing your vision. This is all incredibly exciting. So let's keep in touch. Thank you for having me, Brad. This was fun. All right. Take care now. 